what were the uh, what was your what was the meat and potatoes? What were the staples for you in terms of making cases? What was big at that time? You know, I tried heroin when I first got up there. Wait a I minute, didn't you want to rephrase that? No, no, no. I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, first it's the turkey, oh, now I, it's heroin. See, we yeah. a life of crime. Big jump. Big jump. Well, I, I attempted to make heroin cases. I brought a for, an informant up from Portland, and he, he kind of jerked me around. I mean, it was a very ethnic thing at the time. He didn't make any cases, so then I kind of switched to cocaine. Uh, methamphetamine was big. We had guys doing meth up there. You had meth labs in northern Idaho, and we coordinated. There were only two agents in Idaho and two agents in uh, all of the state of Montana. So it wasn't unusual for me to take a case number in concert with either Idaho or Montana agents, and then I'd do like the undercover or I'd run cases in those states, stuff like that. So we knocked off a couple of meth labs. There was one that was kind of a, it was a predecessor to Breaking Bad because my lab case was in a motorhome. They were buying the precursor chemicals from Oregon, Washington. I don't know if they got the chemicals actually from Idaho or not, but they were bouncing around. And, and six months, I was tracking these guys, tracking the chemicals, tracking where they were, identifying the organization, the cook, and all this kind of stuff. And then when it ultimately came down, they were in a motorhome on the banks of the Columbia River which divides Oregon and Washington, outside of Hermiston, Oregon, the Pendleton, Hermiston, Oregon, over in eastern Oregon, that area. And we, we took them down. And it turned into a big deal because we got, I don't know, a couple pounds of meth. We got just a bunch of cars. We got five weapons. And it went to the appellate court, the Ninth Circuit Appellate in San Francisco. You mean oh, the boy. Ninth Circus. Yes, exactly. But... They upheld the convictions. Everybody went down. Um, were they was, affiliated with? Were they were they affiliated with biker gangs or uh, you know any drug organizations? Or was this just more of a freelance operation? No, this was freelance. This was one guy, one one old time cooker in quotes. That uh, actually, I got him twice. I got him back to back simultaneously. He ran a lab in a motel in Clarkston, uh, Washington. At the same time, he was coordinating the lab, the motorhome lab that we took off in Oregon. So I, we were doing the, the motorhome lab primarily. I mean, we had like four different, uh, four or five different DEA offices respond. We had a plane on the final stage. We had the state police. We had everybody working on it. And <clears throat> simultaneously, he blew up, inadvertently blew up the lab in the motel in Clarkson, Washington. Isn't that the way it ends for most of these guys? <laughs> a lot <laughs> this of them. isn't the safest thing to do. Yeah. So, but I tracked him simultaneously to doing the other one, and then once we arrested him and indicted him, indicted him in the uh, District of Oregon, I also got him indicted in the District of Eastern Washington, and put him in jail again. Behind, I mean, he had back-to-back -back sentences in two different federal districts, uh, which was kind of cool. And I had, I turned an informant that was his, his muscle guy, his, uh, his guy on the, on the motel lab. And he'd been a Vietnam vet. He was an addict. Um, he testified and it, he was a character too. I mean, you know, I, I met him, tried to recruit him and he was wearing a 45 revolver on his hip, like a Western gunfighter. Um, you know, it, it was one of those things you didn't know which way he wanted to know what I was doing on his property. And I, told him who I was, what I was there for. He was good. I mean, he, he said, okay, I know how this goes. I had a lot of interaction with the MPs and the service. He said, the first guy that talks gets, gets a deal, right? There you go. Gets the best so, deal. Yep. Man, the bus is coming around and there's one seat left, pal. So hop on. Yep. So, but, but eventually, you know, we'll talk about some of the other stuff, but I want to get into some of your overseas stuff. Cause you went, I mean, according to, you know, like you said, you've been in like 50, 60 different countries. So, what was your first overseas assignment? First overseas assignment was uh, Bogota, Colombia. I preceded Murph. Yeah. I went down See, there. We all I have did. something in. I was going to say we all have something in common. We've all been down there in Bogota, but you you were first. You you were the you were the settler. You you were Christopher Columbus between the three of us here. Well, it was kind of cool because I did two years, two really miserable years, uh, frustrating years at Epic at the El Paso Intelligence Center. 
But the entree was we were doing planes. We were tracking planes coming out of South America. We had a special operation going on there. And they'd come across the southern border, and we'd hand it off to customs or to uh, whoever, DEA, state locals, whoever was appropriate. So I got interested because the way we were doing it was putting transponders in these planes, using informants in South America to put transponders on the planes and then tracking them with FAA. So my next assignment, I applied for several overseas assignments, but I got selected for Bogota. So in early 83, I left El Paso and went to Bogota. Now, did they put you through language school at the time? Yes. They sent me to uh, State Department Foreign Service Institute, which at the time was in uh, Roslyn, Virginia. Yep. And I went there for 20 weeks. Went there from September of 82 to February of 83. And when you got out, how was your Spanish after 20 weeks? Not that great. Um, I got kind of sidetracked. A couple of incidents happened during that time. And uh, my Spanish was probably a 2-2. You know, it, it should have been better, mean? but I was. Well, it's a rating scale that they use to uh, a native speaker who has command, you know, total native command of the language on a high plane, like a, an educator or a scientist or somebody you can use terminology at the highest level as a five. And then you got, you know, it goes down four is really good native speaker may not with without all the technical stuff perhaps a three is a good working level of spanish and then it goes down so i was a two two plus i I think my official rating at that time was two yeah and you had to have it's a two in speaking and a two in reading reading comprehension so and that was the minimum score you had to have was a two in each category yeah yeah i kind of squeaked by I, I met my current wife there. She was uh, Bulgarian, and I. I and that's why he came out. That's why he came out the two two instead of a four. Well, I was <laughs> I was trying to learn Bulgarian at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. Did, you know, that, did, did anybody tell you? So that was your distraction, huh? Oh, uh, that yeah, that was one. But I oh, had. Oh, okay. A, you can't say that. What that was one. What was the other? <laughs> the other was when I was in Spokane. I remarried, and. Uh, then we had troubles when I got transferred to El Paso because she didn't want to go to El Paso. There were a lot of things going on. Like I say, I go back and it's on me. I was interested in the job. And I took El Paso because I thought it was going to give me a, a few calm years. I, I could stay at home. And so um, she had no intention of going to El Paso. So we split up. She divorced me. I got selected for Columbia and I'm in language school and I get a. Uh, the other thing is we, we have a son as well. Uh, so I get a call one morning and she's been murdered. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're at, in, in, Spokane? in Spokane, in Spokane. Yeah. Long story short is when I applied for Bogota, I'm a single ripping and running agent going into a post of duty that's dangerous and all this kind of stuff, and I'm living the dream. Uh, Within six months, I go down there. I have a brand-new wife and a a two-and-a-half, three-year-old son. So the whole dynamic changes. So I get down to Bogota, and I've got what I term in the book an instant family. Yeah, and was your wife a U.S. citizen at that point, your new wife? My wife was a U.S. citizen. She had defected from communist Bulgaria. She um, came. She went to Germany for a couple of years. She was actually not like today where they are just going across the border. She actually spent eight months in detention at a special camp in a place called Zerndorf, Germany, that was run by the Germans and, and with the U.S. behind it, you know, because of the Cold War. They were interrogating everybody to see whether they were spies or not. So both she and her brother got out of uh, Bulgaria, but they spent time in this camp. And then subsequently, he stayed in Bulgaria. She ended up coming to the United States. And she went to work for the State Department. She was the uh, primary instructor in Bulgarian language and area studies for the State Department, for all the diplomats, the ambassadors, some of the military attaches, some of the spooks. 
go into Bulgaria. So that's where we met at language school. Hey, couple quick things. Let's rewind real quick. Um, the Your second wife, did they ever solve that? Yes. Yeah. The guy actually uh, called 911, said I just oh. shot my girlfriend. Yeah, he was... He was initially sentenced to, um, I think, 20 years, and then it was reduced. I think he was out after eight. Which is outrageous. You take it. I mean, he, he confessed. He even called it in, and he only gets eight years for murdering a person. That's well, unbelievable. You know, it's, it's the... Uh, yeah. That that is a whole nother episode. We we can talk about that too. Let's let's talk about then your current wife. When you said she defected, that kind of brings up a, a different kind of tone as opposed to left or escape. She defected. Was she involved with government or anything? Or no, um, the, no. Okay. Her father was a successful capitalist. I mean, he was educated in Germany. He ran a company. And when the communists came in around 1947, thereabouts, um, they they took over everything. I mean. A party member liked the apartment they were living in. They were in downtown Sofia in a, in a good place right in the middle of town and everything. And they, a party member came in, liked the apartment. So they threw my family's, uh, my wife's family out, put them on the street, gave the apartment to a party member and relocated them. I'm sorry, I'm stuttering here. Relocated them out near the airport. Um, and fortunately, her father was good enough at his job they took over the company, but they left him to run it. So he was better off than a lot of people. Sounds awful lot like Cuba. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you start nationalizing everything, you know, it ne- that's the problem. You know, communism, like that, that stuff never works. They just don't know how to, they just don't know how to do it. So she actually got out through um, Vienna, which was a, you know, a spy haven at the time, but she was a gymnast. And she was on a on a visit on a team in Vienna, Austria, and uh, snuck out under cover of darkness and got across the, into West Germany. And that makes that's why I said the defection. I was looking for something behind their kids because that was one of the things when you looked at Russia, East Germany. Anytime they'd go to the Olympics, they would you'd have the Stasi out there, you'd have KGB out there. the The most embarrassing thing for them was to have one of their athletes defect, you know, during a high profile event. So uh, I'm surprised she made it. Yeah, she was too. She, uh, her father had a guy in Germany that said that had some contacts. I mean, it was all uh, you know the spy stuff behind the line. He wasn't a spy, but he had people. He knew people who did things that, you know, she was successfully transported across the border into West Germany, and then she was picked up by the West German police. She was walking through a forest at the time and picked up by the West German. She didn't know where we, she didn't know where she was. She didn't know. If, She'd been caught or whatever. And then they, they didn't have room. They were going to put her in a hotel. They didn't have room, so they put her in a jail cell the first night. And then uh, subsequently transferred her to the, the camp for Eastern Europeans. You know, that, that takes some stones, especially for a single woman to do that on her own. Yeah. She's a brave lady. She, you know, she's, th- there's a whole other story with her. I keep trying to encourage her to write a book. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, just listen. That's why I said I didn't want to go too far down you know, the rabbit hole on this, but— when you said that word defect, that's why I said that's what triggered. It's not like she, you know, she left or, but defect is a, I mean, and that during the Cold War, during that time, that's a huge deal to get out of these, you know, countries that are behind the Iron Curtain. Bulgaria had, you know, again, a lot of these communist countries aligned with Russia, aligned with other interests. They've got good, you know, intelligence services, secret services. So to be able to escape, that's a whole, like you say, that's a whole story in and of itself. And then the scary part is, like you say, you're walking through the woods. Am I in East Germany? I'm in, am I in West Germany? Am I, am I about to be shot or picked up by the Stasi? Or are the West Germans, you know, am I going to, you know, have new life? God. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, anyway, like I said, I don't want, we'll, ha- we'll have to go back and revisit that. Let's talk about you, though, going down to Bogota, Colombia. Yes, sir. So, but you were in the early days, man. You were in the early days of when uh, the cocaine uh, wars were starting to heat up. What was it like back there in the early 80s? Once again, it was great for me. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I mean, I was, I was going out, you know, we had, uh, we were funding the, the wire room, the, the T3 room for the Colombian FA dos. Uh, so, you know, we were giving them information. They were going up in wires. This was before all, you know, special ops and Del, all those guys came down. So when we'd go out and hit a, a something like Tranquilandia, 
which was the largest seizure at the time, uh, like 12 and a half tons of coke and labs and multiple lab sites, there'd be one of us, you know, one gringo with the Colombians. And if it was either the Colombian National Police or maybe the military, depending on the operation. So, yeah, I was having a great time going out and blowing things up and, and doing that kind of stuff. Uh, again, family was kind of left in the lurch uh, due to my immaturity and, and adrenaline rushes and so forth. But I, I just, I am still, to this day, 40 years later, so amazed with my wife that she stuck with me. I mean, here she, she didn't speak any Spanish. Here she had multilingual, but she, she shows up, she, she had a career. She was at the top of her game with State Department. I mean, she was it in that department. She leaves me, we, we'd known each other only a few months. We get down there and all of a sudden she's saddled with, with a, a small child and her, you talk about stones, Murph. I mean, I just, I can't even imagine what she went through. And we're still together. And I mean, it's, it's great. So that's my plug for her. But I had a great time in Columbia. We're I, think we're, I think we're married to sisters because uh, Connie had, you know, she, she's a hell of a lot braver than I ever was. Well, we're we're all lucky we've had women who have put up with us, you know, over the years. So, but don't go, but Murph, you, you got your eyes brightened, and I think you got, you know, you got excited there when he said Tranquilindia. I can't even say that. I'm it's, sorry, I have been on planes, trains, automobiles. I just got home at one o'clock in the morning this morning. Um, Tranquilandia. So, Murph, you you your eyes went big when he said that. You said, "Oh yeah, we want to talk about that." So, oh, dive yeah. in. Let's let's come on. Let's. What did you want to hear? Well, it's like he just like Mike just said there, the largest uh, cocaine seizure of its time at what twelve and a half tons, I think you said. But there were how many other labs were found in that immediate area? At least six. I I went to six, and what happened was when we went to Tranquilandia, it was uh, we found a map. It was a hand drawn map on the uh, wall of the dining hall where all the guys were sleeping. They, they had this place where they'd eat, and then they had a bunkhouse for, like, the pilots would come in. They had different bunkhouse. They had all these different structures under the jungle canopy. And they had a map up there with, with six, I think it was six additional labs that we didn't even know about. But they had directions, and they had uh, call signs, radio frequencies, stuff like that. So when we hit Tranquilandia, we used that as a base, and went out exploring and found these other sites. Uh, there was, uh, like I say, about six others. That's a gold mine information when you're finding all that. <laughs> I mean, other labs, radio frequencies. It's that's just a, a almost unheard of gold mine of information right there. What a treasure trove! And it, and connect me, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't DEA hide a tracking device in one of the barrels of ether that were sent down and? That's how you yeah. guys it. it was an interesting thing. It was a, it was a combination operation. They, they had uh, tracking on, on precursors, and that was being run, I think, out of D.C. And then um, there was some overflights as well that we, we got reports from somebody who lost their way in the Amazon jungle or something, some pilot and saw something weird going on, you know. So it was kind of an anonymous tip, and, and the tracking, it was, it all came together. That's, that, is a, that is a major, major deal. That's a big freaking deal, brother. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So um, were you expecting to, f so let's talk about that rate a little bit, because that's just like, oh, yeah, then we found 12 and a half tons. Not everybody finds 12 and a half tons. I mean, Murph's big first seizure was an ounce, and he thinking, is that? Two ounces. Two, two ounces. ounces. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no. So, I mean, but, but talk about putting together an operation of this size, because you're talking six labs, 12 and a half tons, which, by the way, which organization was it? Multiple, because they had labs owned by, uh, oh, Rodriguez Gotcha. Rodriguez Gotcha owned one. We had one tied to Escobar. Um, there were a couple others, because these guys were working in concert with the FARC, the Armed Revolutionary Force of the Columbia, which was a guerrilla group trying to overthrow the, the government and they were protecting the lab sites on behalf of the traffickers so it, it was a big deal down there they had uh, protection rackets going and and i'm sorry murph you look like you're going to say something I, I, I was gonna say i did you guys come under fire when you landed in there okay i want to clarify that i was not the agent on the initial raid okay there was another guy in the office named ron pettingill 
who was the DEA agent that went down there. And yeah, they were under fire for two days. It was, uh, they estimated about 100 FARC guerrillas were resisting on the initial raid. And then he came back, and then I was assigned to it like the next couple of days. We went down to destroy it and so forth. Um, so he was the initial agent. Just think about that, Morgan. A two-day firefight. All the gun battles I've been in, the longest is, you know, several minutes. I've never, I've never been in a firefight that lasted an hour. You know, just you guys forgot the philosophy. One riot, one ranger, man. Send me down there. Trooper, I would have handled that shit. No. Yeah, they probably needed <laughs> yeah. somebody to change tires on the helicopter. Down. Yeah, and then let me get you guys back up in the air. <laughs> hey, but but that when you when you were getting ready to go down there and, and you've you discovered this, did you have any clue at all that it was did you have any clue prior to that that it was going to be a huge operation like this? Or what was was there anything that surprised you once you got down there? The sophistication. Because we got down there, and they, I mean, they had running water. They had uh, showers set up, you know. They had water barrels and everything where they could take showers. They had a meal hall. Uh, they had, like I say, bunk things. I, I went through about, um, I don't know, 20 minutes of testimony before the President's Commission on Organized Crime in November of 84, where I outlined all this stuff. I, I submitted a written statement to them, and then they had me up to testify and all the specifics, you know, I lay out in the testimony. And I can't remember everything off the top of my head here, you know, 35 years later. But, yeah, the sophistication is what just kind of blew us away because we had no idea what was going on. Now, was this the logistic support? Was that something they developed on their own? Or did you find that they were working with other people? Because, look, people think logistics, ah, you know, that's just you know, it, it's not exciting, but you realize armies can't move without logistics. You can't do operations without logistics. You got to have food, money, water, resources, supplies, you know, all, all the other stuff. So the, so for the people at the tip of the spear, did you ever find that they were uh, working with people outside the country of Columbia? Any, because we talked to guys, you know, we know at one point the IRA had been working uh, with the FARC or other people on building bombs, you know, transferring bomb technology. Did you find any outside influence in terms of this operation? I did not. And to my best knowledge, we did not. Um, like I say, I had most of the facts and figures at the time, and that, that never came to my attention, or I never came across anything like that. They were pretty self-sufficient. I mean, the cartels, when you're talking about Escobar and later and the Ochoas and those guys, they had so much money, and they had so many resources. I had situations where I'd have informants that'd be working in a lab, but they wouldn't know where the hell they were. You know, they'd go out and they'd either be blindfolded or they'd be taking taken up these circuitous rivers and everything. This is going on in the in the Amazon area. And they, they wouldn't know where they were geographically, and they might not even be sure who the hell they were working for. Because if somebody was good at his job, they'd trade him. They'd go between different, you know, like maybe Rodriguez or Huela Gacha. These different guys Ochoa's would have them this week or Escobar would have them the next week or El Mexicano would have them, you know, next month or whatever. And they'd, they'd give us information. They'd give us samples, but they, they couldn't give us specifics. It's like Luis Navia, who worked for all the cartels as a logistics guy. Yeah. 26 and a half tons, though. Man, that's, you know, you, you just how big of an impact – when when you took out these labs, were you able to measure an impact, or with these, or for these folks, considering the extent of where they operated, was this just a minor inconvenience? As far as the monetary impact, yeah, you know, or even the their street, operational impact, yeah. Um, you know, I I really can't tell you off the top of my head what that would have been or what it may have been. Uh, the analysts and those folks may have been on top of that. What I can tell you is there was a definite impact on the response because the more we did, the worse the responses became. I mean, there's one, I think, uh, Murph, you've read the book or you're reading it. There's a, a, I lay out a paragraph chronologically what happens in a period of, of six months or eight months during 1984. I mean, the assassination of... Uh, Laura Bonilla, the Attorney General, Minister of Justice in Colombia, bombings at the U.S. Embassy, the seizure at Tranquilandia, all this stuff escalated to the point where by November of 84, it really hit the fan. And I mean, they, at one point, uh, you can read about how an informant 
that uncovered an assassination plot against the U.S. ambassador. And we had polygraphers come down from the agency, from DEA, and the guy passed all the tests. They had to evacuate the U.S. ambassador behind that. I mean, it it got nasty, uh, you know. And contracts on DEA, on the administrator, hit teams are going to be sent to the United States to to kill DEA agents. I mean, there is a lot of stuff going on that's well documented in the book. But like I say, off the top of my head, I can't put my finger on all the details right now. Tell us about, uh, and uh, this is a little bit of a humorous story, I think. Uh, Our listeners might think we're stupid for saying they're crazy, but um, you guys made a a Christmas video to send back to your families, didn't you, while you were in Bogota? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the first Christmas. We went down in 83, so, you know, by Christmas time, I was kind of getting into this stuff. Um, And we were kind of getting used to it. So I I check out the video camera from the office, and I'd never used it before. I take it home. I set it up on a tripod, and I'm taking this video because we were doing VHS videos at the time. My brother was sending us entertainment. We were sending back videos to them, letting them know we were doing well. So I'm doing this video, taking pictures of my son and my wife, Jenny, and then I decided, well, okay, I, I'll get in it. I get in it, and we're saying, yeah, everything's great. The tour is going well. I mean, Bogota's not like what you're reading in the newspapers and going on and on, giving my folks reassurance, right? Well, then I decide, and I better check and make sure this thing's working because I'm not really familiar or technologically savvy, so I stop it. I play it back. I'm playing all this the good news stuff, and in the background, there's intermittent gunfire. The occasional explosion going on. <laughs> you know, and here we are on the video telling them, yeah, everything's great. We're really enjoying the tour. Ba, 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 ba. Boom. Ba, ba, boom. We'd gotten so used to this stuff going on, we didn't even notice it. Uh, you guys aren't even flinching. We, we, we did not send that video back to my parents. <laughs> I love that. That was hilarious. You know, and it's amazing you said that because when I first moved out here to Virginia, we lived just north of Dulles Airport. So you heard the air, airplanes all the time, you know. And now you're to the point, it's like you're outside. It's it's background noise. You don't know it. But I can't mm-hmm. – I, I don't know. I guess, you know, what does that say when you get used to just having the – even the wife gets used to having the gunfire. Oh, yeah, that's an AK-47. Oh, no, that, <laughs> no that's a Colt. You know, you know Mike, our, our first night in, in, uh, in Bogota – this was June of 91. It was just a few days before Pablo surrendered, but they put us in a boarding house instead of a hotel when we flew into to Bogota on a Sunday night because we had a cat. And so we're there in, in this bed. You know, it's the kind of bed that's, that sinks down in the middle. So when you both lay down, you kind of roll over into each other. I mean, it was, a, it was one of the crappiest places we ever lived. But, you know, and we're thinking, well, shit, did we make the right decision? And about 2 o'clock in the morning, we heard a couple gunshots outside the window. So... I got. I grabbed my nine millimeter off the off the table there, and you kind of go over to the window to peek out, see what's going on. The next thing you know, you hear automatic weapons fire. We never. That was our first night. We never told our families about that. <laughs> you know, again, it goes back to that scene from My Cousin Vinny when Joe Pesci. You know, he's out in the country and it's all nice and quiet. He can't stand that. He's he's thrown in. You know, j- he's thrown in jail for contempt, and he sleeps like a baby with the yeah. fighting and the yelling going on. Ah, this is just another perfect night. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, there's, but there's, and I know we're starting to run a little short on time here, but um, there's one story you got to talk about yeah. when you guys were in Greece, I think, and I think oh, you were yeah. on vacation. Yeah, we were actually on uh, on vacation going on R&R out of Pakistan. It's after I left Bogota. I got evacuated from Bogota. You're evacuated from Bogota to, to Pakistan. Oh, that sounds like a, a safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting because it was an ongoing theme, uh, a thread for I kept trying to get to Turkey. There were occasional uh, vacancies in Istanbul, Turkey, and I kept applying for them. And at one point, they came down there. The administ- Actually, at the time, he was a deputy administrator, Lawn, Jack Lawn. And one of the assistant administrators came down to Bogota because the State Department made it adult only. So we can't be down there with our child. So we're going to get out. We're going to be evacuated. And they want to know, where do you want to go? You want to come back to the States? Do you want to stay overseas? So I said, yeah, there's this opening in Istanbul. And, you know, they came back and said, well, you know, we can't do that because you've been down here two years. You have a six-year cap on overseas service. 
and we spent the money to teach a Spanish language and to take a year to teach a Turkish. So now that's not going to work. So in the course of looking for a job, essentially, knowing I'm going to be evacuated, I'm calling headquarters and I'm not getting a response from the, the Latin America desk. So I get a call one day from a guy named Doug Wonkel. And he's in the Europe, Eastern Europe, Middle East desk. And he says, you know, I see these messages piling up. Um, can I help you? Long story short, he talks me into taking a job in Lahore, Pakistan. <laughs> and, Which, if you've ever been to Pakistan, folks, in some of those areas, it is the armpit of Asia. We didn't know anything about it because when I first started applying for overseas jobs from Epic, there were like in one month, there were 13 vacancies I put in for, or 13 were available. I put in for everything from Japan to South America to Europe, all over the place. The two I did not apply for were Karachi, Pakistan, and New Delhi, India. I There's no way in hell I'm ever going to go to that part of the world. No way. And here it was two years later, I'm talking to this guy about going to Pakistan. And he said, well, the thing is, State Department, the Narcotics Assistant, or INM, International Narcotics Matters at the time, they want to create um, four new positions, one in each of the offices in Pakistan, Islamabad, uh, Peshawar, Karachi, and Lahore. And so we're going to do a joint thing, and DEA is going to fund the position, and state, or actually, they're going to fund the salary, but State Department will fund the positions. They'll pay the expenses, the housing, all the stuff, furnished housing. So would you be interested? I suggest you don't go to the one in Peshawar because there's no school for your kid, but Lahore is open. If you want it, I'll make it happen. So we used the weekend. We talked about it. We looked at the maps. We didn't know where we were going, what we were getting into. There was one guy in the office that was married to a Pakistani woman. We talked to her. There was another guy in the political section married to a Bangladeshi. We talked to her. We figured, what the hell? We've been here in Colombia for two years. We can go anywhere, right? So I called him back said, take the job. So we get evacuated, straight transfer to Lahore, Pakistan. And the job was pretty cool. It was advisor to the Punjab Joint Narcotics Task Force. And I was assigned. I had my own budget. I had State Department funding. I worked in the DEA office, but I had State Department funding. Um, and I, it was, my task was to create this task force. And when I arrived, there was one cop assigned to it, one deputy superintendent of police or something. And in the, in the year that I was there, first year, we built it up to about 22 guys, four different agencies, and had some record seizures and everything. So back, fast forward to the question about the, the vacation thing. I'd been there for a couple of years. I was trying to get a promotion. I was looking for a 14, um, you know, not having a lot of luck. And we'd go on R&R every alternate year. We'd have home leave one year, and then the second year, you know, the alternate years, we'd have R&R. &R. So we'd take the funding for our R&R &R and we'd vacation. I mean, we had great world travel. We went all over the world. When you say R &R. funding, was that part of your package, is that they would fund your R&R? &R? DEA would fund, and I think generally the government, would fund your return trip to the closest port of entry in the United States. So depending on where you were, like if you were in Europe, They'd, they'd pay your trip back to Washington or, or New York or whatever. If you were on the other side of the world, it might be Seattle LA or Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah, whatever. So what we'd do is we'd take whatever amount they allowed and then supplement, pay out of pocket to do whatever kind of trip we wanted to do. But we never went back to the States on the R&R &R years. We, we were mandated to go back during home leave because you had to have headquarters briefings, the medical stuff and all that. So... This was a year, it was an off year, and we were going to go back, um, actually, well, I won't go down that road yet. Uh, we were going to go on a trip to Bulgaria, and then we we're going to go to Greece, and then we we're going to go to Africa, Cairo, down to Nairobi, and do a loop, Nairobi, do a photo safari down to Mombasa, and then come back to Karachi and home. You know, just your so normal was, little vacation there, Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> we, the last time we'd done it, I mean, we did, you know, I loved this job because I traveled the world. I mean, we went from Lahore to Delhi, took the train across India, flew to Rangoon, Burma, went Burma, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, 
did all that Singapore, did all that, and came back. So this was like two years later. Well, well, let's do something different. Let's go to Africa. So we wanted to go to Sofia because Jenny's parents, my wife Jenny's parents, were still in, in Sofia, Bulgaria, and we wanted to visit them. So we were on dip, diplomatic passports, and the State Department said, well, you know, since you're on dip passports, they probably won't screw with you in Bulgaria, but if they give you a visa, that's the key. So we got our visas and the Bulgarian embassy took like six weeks to give us visas to Bulgaria. But the plan was to leave Lahore, go to Sofia, Bulgaria, and then go to Greece and on south to Africa. So this particular trip, um, I got hung up because I, was, I had a lot of cases going on, a lot of stuff. And Jenny and Tor, my son, went ahead of me about a week to Sofia. Stayed with her folks. Then I followed because I found out I got a, a promotion. I got a promotion to a GS job, a GS-14 job in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And they'd already left. So I called them, talked to them. I get on the plane. I leave Lahore, go to Karachi, spent the night with the boss down there, and then leave Karachi for Sofia. So we spent a few days with her po- folks in Sofia, Bulgaria. And then fly to Greece. We're going to tour Greece. So we get to um, to Athens, and we do all the local sites, walk all over the place, see all you know, the Acropolis and all that. And the next day, I said, you know, we ought to do something different. So I went to the concierge at the hotel. I said, what, what can you suggest? He said, let me book you on a ferry, a day ferry trip to the islands of Poros, Hedrus, and Aegina. Yeah, okay, that sounds cool. So the next morning we get up and ultimately got on. We were the last people to board this ferry because there was a mix-up in communication and transportation. And we get there, 471 people on the ferry. What year was this? 1988. It was uh, July 11th, 1988. And we get up. They pull the gangplank up. We're on the ferry. We tour the islands all day. We have lunch here, lunch, da, da, da. We're coming back to Greece, to, uh, I mean, Athens, late that afternoon, and the shit hits the fan. Explosions, automatic weapons fire, all this kind of stuff. The bottom line was three terrorists from the Abu Nidal, uh, Black September, they got a couple other AKs, uh, decided to hit this ferry. Because a guy, a terrorist, had been arrested in Athens on visa violations that they wanted released. So they were doing this, mounting this attack on these 471 passengers on this ferry. Uh, and they, they killed nine people, injured between 80 and 90. I mean, people got, they blew up the wheelhouse, did all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know. Including your son. Well, he got, yeah, he got wounded with something. We don't know whether it was a bullet or shrapnel or whatever. He got nicked, fortunately, not hurt seriously. Um, so, tell, tell everybody how you survived. Well, what's a good DEA agent do? I mean, you don't have a SWAT team behind you. You don't have your, your brothers and sisters shoulder to shoulder behind you going through a door. You're by yourself. You weren't even your, armed. No arms, right? Nope. No arms. Uh, eight-year-old son and wife. And all this stuff's going on, I figured, exit strategy. So we were, you know, had to get out of the kill zone. So I told my wife, I said, we're going overboard. And she says, I'm not jumping off this ship. We were about four and a half miles at sea out of Athens. And I said, yeah, that's the only way we're going. We're, we're getting off this ship. We've got to go off the stern. So we got the, I got her to put on a life jacket and I got a life jacket on my son and strapped one on myself and got her. She jumped off the, the back of the ship, the stern of the ship, hit the water. And I didn't know how well she could swim, but I figured the life jacket's going to save her, you know, no matter what. The life jacket pops off. She hits the water and the life jacket comes off. And there's a swell and the life jacket goes the other way because right before we jumped, I said, look, there's a fishing boat over there, and I point out this fishing boat that's kind of approaching because this black plume of smoke is coming out of the wheelhouse. It's a fire. Uh, all this destruction is going on, and ships in the area, ferries and fishing boats started responding. I said, 
when you hit the water, start swimming that direction toward that fishing boat. And she did. She did what she was told. She, the life jacket came out, went the opposite way, and she started trying to swim. I pray to God that she makes it because I had no other way. I mean, uh, and then I climbed over the rail on the stern and, and I had a, another passenger, a French-speaking passenger who did sign language and stuff like that. And I had him hold my son. I jumped in the water and then told him, come on, take a jump. You know, and he came, he immediately jumped down and I laid back. I'm no swimmer. I'm no Navy SEAL, man. Water is survival to me. I scuba dive or used to, but on the surface, it's, it's catch as catch can. But so I laid on my back. I had my backpack over one shoulder with my cameras and passports. And I had uh, him in my other arm and just started kicking in the general direction of the fishing boat. And they picked us up pulled us over the nets. I had put him up and they took him over. And then I, I, I hung on the nets for a few minutes till I could get my breath and they could haul me over the side, got on. And there was Jenny sitting there on the deck of the same boat. So, and then they took us back to the, the port and put us in a hot, in an ambulance with a bunch of other people, took us to the hospital, but everything we had was superficial. It you know, wasn't that big a deal. And they had some seriously injured people there from fire, gunshot wounds, shrapnel, stuff like that. I said, you know, we don't have any business here. Let's get out. So we walked out, flagged down a cab. We're barefooted, soaking wet. No shoes. <laughs> we get in this cab, told him to go back to the hotel. He took us to the hotel. And we went in, asked for the room key, and, you know, called the embassy. As for the security officer, the RSO, the regional security officer, said, hey, we just got off this ship. And, uh, you know, so he and the FBI league at another FBI guy came over to, to interview us about it. We ID'd the shooter. And uh, there were apparently three of them. We only saw the shooter. We actually sat with him during lunch, him and two French girls. And uh, he, he murdered them first, right? Yeah. Yeah. Initially, they thought one of the French girls was a co-conspirator, and there were these allegations floating around, but, but no, he, he killed her. We identified her, we identified him to uh, the RSO and to the Greek police, but then I didn't think it was a good idea to be, be talking to anybody, so I just shut down any, any potential interviews with the police and with the media. said, no, thank you. And I moved up the, the departure a day earlier and we left got on a plane the next night for uh, cairo now that's a memorable vacation isn't it oh my gosh <laughs> well the, the the aftermath that you don't know about is when we got to puerto rico um our son was putting a antilles is a uh, there's a navy base there and he went to school on this navy base and he was in school for like three or four days. We got a, a call from the teacher. She wants a teacher's conference. Yeah, okay. We come down there and she said, look, we have to have a talk about your son. I mean, you have to stress to him that he has to tell the truth. He can't lie. What are you talking about? Well, the first assignment was to write about your summer vacation. <laughs> and, and he he wrote this just unbelievable paper about being on a ship with terrorists attacking you. I mean, we can't have that kind of stuff. Well, lady, <laughs> he's telling it like it is. Wow. Yeah. Well, he, Before we close uh, out on he this, should have run the, he should have won the writing essay that day. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't know what. No, ladies, you need to put this in the nonfiction section. It's not fiction. It's nonfiction. But wow, I want to rewind for just a second though on this before we before we close out. But it's when this started happening. Did you have any inkling prior to that? Did, did you did the hairs on the back of your neck go up at all? Did you get a bad feeling, or did this just come out of the blue? When we were sitting next to the guy at lunch, he, you go back to the, the initial Sky Marshal training, watching people, figuring out where people are, who they are, where they're from, where they're going, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there was, um, I, I checked him out and there was something about him that I didn't like, I couldn't identify. One of the things was these two girls he was with were speaking in French. They were very animatedly speaking in French. He never said a word. 
He sat there like he was just, I, I think I describe in the book as a ghost companion. He, did, he just was mute. He didn't say anything. He didn't participate in anything. Um, and he was just kind of there. He was in their company. But he, he reminded me of um, Aliaga, the guy that tried to assassinate the Pope like seven years before that. Just, you know, I, but I couldn't tell what he was. I developed a, a knack for being able to, you know, I know the word profile is a bad word in this politically correct uh, climate, but but it's a fact. You you profile people that shouldn't be someplace where they are, or that type of thing. And and this guy was just there was something, but I didn't you know think about it after they got up and went back out on the deck, and and, and I didn't think about it until later when it all erupted. Wow. What was the, what was the, the, so how did this all come to a conclusion? I mean, what was the final aftermath with the ferry and everything? Um, I think nine dead, about 90 casualties, something like that. The ferry was completely destroyed. Uh, they never caught any of the three terrorists, to my knowledge, as of the writing of, of the book here this last year. Um, they were in, they were charged in absentia by a French court and sentenced to 30 years. But to the best of my knowledge, they never caught any of them. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, your book is, uh, it's, it's just like from one action item to the next. So for, you know, for our listeners, if you're looking for a book that will keep you kind of on the edge of the seat, this is the book. Oh, Thank you right. for that, Murph. Thank you. Well, and the book is busting drug dealers the true story the diaries of a dea special agent which can be found at specialagentpress.com and yet i mean i'll tell you what it, we we can't do like i said we're, we we're, we're working on trying to keep these you know stories shorter but more impactful there's no way we can cover everything even in a day oh, i mean uh, if we had john here for a day well first of all <laughs> both murph and i would uh, we'd be taking a lot of pee breaks at our age oh so, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Too much coffee. <laughs> Too much coffee. Hey, but 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 it's so amazing because um, we want to close out talking about just how you finished up your service. But even after punching out a DEA after all this stuff, you're like most people. Like like Merce says, you know, you may retire, but your oath never expires, right? So um, right. You, you continued coming back to work after 9-11 because of your Sky Marshal training. You ended up doing a lot of work with the National Airlines uh, Pilots Association, right? Just um, help helping keep, you know, how much of that training from back then was able to translate and transition into modern, you know, uh, aviation and modern threats? The, the training I went through, you know, just let me preface that by saying after, when, when we left Pakistan, I did three years as a group supervisor in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and had some record-breaking cases there, and then went back, you know, beat the odds and went back to New Delhi, India for six and a half years before I finally got caught up. I, I like to laugh. I say, you know, I didn't get caught for headquarters duty until I had 28 years on the job and they finally caught up to me because you can only do six years overseas and then you have to come back and genuflect and kiss the ring and do your, you know, headquarters or domestic time. But I was fortunate in the fact that Puerto Rico was considered a domestic post of duty. So I split up Colombia Pakistan with Puerto Rico for three years. And then I went back to India to South Asia for six and a half years. So by the time they caught up to me and brought me back to headquarters, you know, I only, I, I was retirement eligible within a year or so of that. And uh, when I couldn't get back overseas, I tried to go to Thailand uh, and Turkey again. I couldn't get out. So I retired and uh, did some post-retirement work, as you say, uh, before I went to the Airline Pilots Association, however, I worked three years on what they call a special investigative unit program with DEA uh, in South America and different things, advising, you know, special units that we would recruit from local cops, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, those countries. And they actually had one in Afghanistan as well. So I did that for three years and then went to work for the Airline Pilots Association and worked with the Federal Air Marshal Service, the FBI, FAA, the agency, a lot of those in aviation security and post post uh, 9-11. So, yeah, the, the answer to the question was, you know, they were so far advanced in comparison to what it was when I was a Sky Marshal in 1971. Um, 
that the connections were very valuable. The experience was valuable, but the um, the reality was the FAMS, the Federal Air Marshal Service. They were they were so far advanced to what we did in 1971. When I was flying around with a five-shot 38 snub nose, I mean, these, these guys, they were the real deal. I mean, I, it was interesting because I was part of a, a, the airlines, ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, was a union organization. So, and then, you know, unions and law enforcement don't always mix, but I was able to carry my security clearance into post-retirement years. And I actually, it was downgraded from an SCI, you know, code word thing when I was with DEA down to secret with, uh, I worked for the Airline Pilots Association. And uh, I got, actually it was TSA that sponsored a secret level. So I was able to work with the air marshals and the Bureau, the FBI and, and whoever, to do with some classified stuff as, as a union organization. So it was interesting. Did that for 10 years. That's a big deal to get somebody to sponsor you because it's, it's back then, there's, uh, when I retired in 13, it was maybe $6,000 to, to have that background done if you had yeah. to come out of pocket. But if you had a company that would sponsor you, they'd take yeah. care of all the for you. Yeah, that was the big thing. Hey, did you ever know a guy named Bob Friel over at the FAMS? Bob Friel, no. Bob, Bob was a good guy. Actually, I worked with him, but he was secret. He was on four presidential protective details, did a little time at VA, but then he was one of the original fams, you know, back in the day. So, uh, yeah, I knew a lot of those guys. I mean, the, actually, I was able to attend their 50th anniversary fam anniversary because of my Sky Marshal service, which cool. was kind of cool. <laughs> because at the time, I got a picture on the wall. Who was it? Um, Pistol, John Pistol, and uh, Bob Bray were, you know, running. TSA and the FAM service at the time, and I got invited to the 50-year uh, anniversary of that, which was kind of cool. Yeah. yeah I, Pistol came over from the FBI, right? Yeah, the Bureau. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. I'll tell you, you were talking about New Delhi, one of my favorite. I mean, that was a favorite place to visit because of the Red Fort, um, the T-Service. Did you ever work with any of the guys? They called them the uh, Greyhounds. They were, they were direct action unit out of Andhra Pradesh. No. Yeah, no. you talk about some bad MFers. Um, the, these guys were in the jungles hunting the Maoist and the Naxalites, you know, and doing that kind of stuff. But uh, I tell you, the best, the best. We'll finish up with this story. Well, uh, we'll finish up with you. But one of the funny stories when I've landed in New Delhi, we're going there, and I'm watching these guys drive. I'm with some guys. We're going to an anti-terrorism conference, and this guy's this dude's driving, and he's only looking to his left. I said, "What the fuck are you doing?" He goes, "Oh." Uh, a guy on my right, not my problem. I only look to the left, and that's the way they drive there. Nobody ever looks to the right, and they're just driving through these roundabouts. You know, how to, nobody looks to the right. No, not my problem, you know. <laughs> that's true. I took Very my life true. in my hands. Two o'clock in the morning, we're driving to the hotel. We're staying at the Taj uh, there in New Delhi. And two o'clock in the morning, and you think, okay, two o'clock in the morning, you should be kind of quiet. Uh, wrong, my friends. <laughs> you know, I'm going. Is this it? Is this where life ends for me? I'm watching my life flash before my eyes, man. But you got you had a whole. First of all, this is us saluting you for all the service you did. From uh, you know, even selling encyclopedias, kids needed to be educated. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, and and all the work that you did. Hey, look, this is us saluting you. And we want to make sure that people you know get your book. So it's called Busting Drug Dealers: True Stories, The Diaries of a DEA Special Agent. You can also find it at Special Agent Press. Dot com. Well, this nobody's going to see it. This is only audio. <laughs> I'm showing you. I'm showing you so you can read the title. I'm giving you cue cards. <laughs> well, I've I've got your I've got your web page up, including your Amazon page. So it came out May 22nd uh, of this year. So relatively new book. So we yeah, want so people Mike, to want yeah, people. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry, what's that? I was just going to say, Mike. It's been a, it's been an honor to have you on here. Um, your book was one of the most adventuresome I've ever read. Uh, and highly, highly encourage our listeners to to pick up a copy, and and I'm guarantee you won't be disappointed. Yeah, well, it'll be on our webpage, like always. You can go to our book list on our webpage; it'll be listed there, also on the episode page. And uh, have you got another book in you? Uh, yeah, because I end this one when I'm leaving uh, Pakistan, or actually leaving India, leaving where the hell? No, leaving <laughs> Pakistan. <laughs> I can't remember. No, when I leave, when I get promoted group supervisor in San Juan and then country attache in New Delhi, India, that's all yet to become, yet to be told. So the, the book just takes me up through 
you know, Bogota and then Lahore, Pakistan. So we're renaming it Busting Drug Dealers Part One. There you go. There we go. You let yeah. us know when part two comes out. We'll get you back on. We'll talk about that. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. It's been enjoyable. Again, All right. thank you, brother. This is us saluting you. Okay, you guys don't go anywhere. Hang on, everybody. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Who would have thought, Murph, you go on vacation and not making fun of this at all. I mean, because nine people were killed, a, a mm-hmm. lot of people wounded. You're you think you're on a cruise? I think what was in the Mediterranean or Greece somewhere. It's like you're out there for vacation, and it's you are in the middle of a terrorist attack. Yeah, it's just outrageous. It's it, you know, I mean, we've been on a couple cruises, and that's never entered my mind that that would happen. But here it was with Mike, and you know, and, and I mean, there's there's been times when you've been in situations that you do realize things could go wrong very quickly. And you think, man, I don't even have a gun. I don't even have a pocket knife on me. And that's the situation here. But then on top of that, he's got his wife and his son with him. Holy cow. And he's sitting next to the dude who starts the whole thing going, the terrorist with the two girls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they weren't obviously involved because he ends up killing them. So, right. and, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, when I first read, you know, that once they got back to the hotel and the local police came to him, with embassy officials, and they wanted to take a statement. And, and after he thought about it, he's like, no. And I thought, well, that's not right. That's not what we do. But then I get to thinking, you know what? He's putting his wife and his child in danger if he does. And terrorists are not going to stop. You know, they, they don't care to die. I mean, that, the terrorists on that boat, they all died. You know, that, that's their little mission. They think, I don't know if they think they're going to go get the 76 virgins or... Well, or they successfully Virginia. passed the room temperature challenge, which is good, because that's the only good state for a terrorist. Right. Right. So it's, don't, I'm not criticizing him whatsoever on that, because if I was in the same shoes, I'm sure my wife would have slapped me if I thought I was going to talk. Well, yeah, here's my name, my home address, my date of birth. Here's how to find me, you know, yep. and here's how to put a big target on my back. And it's not being chicken shit. It's, it's a fact of life is that um, it's very hard to negotiate with people whose opening premises, I want to kill you. Yep. And have the means to do so. They're not just, it's just not bluffing you. Yeah, and but 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 beyond that though, some of the stuff he worked on, I, I mean, it's just. But but I'm still laughing though, as, as an encyclopedia salesman, not making any money, getting ripped off, and it's the great turkey caper at a Howard Johnson's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think too. I think Mike probably sent, spent more time working overseas than he did domestically. Yeah, yeah. That which hey, that's he played by the rules, and you know, some people there's an old saying: you can work the job, or you can let the job work you. Well, yeah. and. So now I will tell you the so the picture as you guys if you go to the website and take a look at it the, the on our game of crimes uh, podcast.com the pro, the picture for the episode is him of his undercover picture in Pakistan when he was pretending to be Pakistani had a Pakistani he, <laughs> he is he is not Pakistani but still he got a passport you know Yep, got the undercover creds. Got the undercover creds, man. That's good. But hey, guys, well, if you like that, let us know. Um, just uh, do those five stars, Apple, Spotify. Really helps us out a lot. Um, we, it's magic. We don't know how it works. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, all rolled into one. So just head on over there. Also head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Check out his book. You can also go to his website, SpecialAgentPress.com, SpecialAgentPress.com, and get his book. Busting drug dealers, you know, the true stories uh, of a DEA, uh, true stories in the diaries of a DEA special agent. And I mean, and the great thing about it is this is part one, as we found out. Part two uh, is coming out because he in the first book, he stopped short. I mean, he's not even well into his career yet. So he's probably got three or four books in him if he keeps this up. Holy cow. I hope you're not too old to get them all finished there, Mike. But uh, hang in there, brother. Make sure you dedicate one of them to Murph. Say, oh, I do remember you now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he'll remember you now. Oh, you're that pain in the ass from Game of Crimes. Yeah, I remember you. (laughs) Yeah. So follow us on that thing. Also, they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be is Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got all sorts of good stuff on there. Like I said, we've got our case of the month coming out. We're doing, we we switched it up a little bit. Um, Murph and I are each doing a couple stories, so about 15 minutes each. So we're doing some quick hits, but we're covering a lot more territory, a lot more cases. Uh, these things go just beyond our standard, you know, uh, funny stuff like you can't make this shit up. We, we dive into some real serious things. So make sure you join us for that. But more importantly, make sure you join us as we once again, we will be coming back for episode 122 to play 
the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, turkey-friendly, and exploding Christmas video game of all, the Game of Crimes. 